This is episode 261 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, What Will You Deal With When Hunting in an SHTF Situation? Health and Hygiene Tips for the Homestead, Part 1. And Conflicted, Tough Family Decisions, What Would You Do? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 261. Let's go ahead and dive right into our first article. It comes to us from survivalpedia.com. And again, the article title is What Will You Deal With When Hunting in an SHTF Situation? This is an interesting article and there's some ideas that uh, maybe I haven't really seen explored before. Uh, So let's go ahead and start reading. The prepping movement has evolved through the years. It has been in existence. This is not surprising as there has been a huge amount of time, energy, and money which has gone into developing plans, tools, and methods for survival in the last few years. So it only makes sense that we've collectively come up with better ideas than we had a few years ago. One of the most important directions that prepping has taken during this time is that of extending the window of time that people are preparing to survive. What started out as preparing for the aftermath of a natural disaster, needing to survive a few months, has turned into the idea of self-sufficiency and sustainability so that people can survive permanently should a major catastrophe take down the infrastructure that we all depend on. A large part of this is what I refer to as urban homesteading. While homesteading has always existed, the idea has moved into suburbia in the modern incarnation of prepping. Many of us are looking at how we can produce our own food and water so that we can survive for the long term. More than anything, this means gardening, although many are raising chickens, rabbits, and fish for animal protein as well. But raising enough animal protein to take care of your family needs in a post-apocalyptic world would probably require more land than most of us have available. All animals require food, and the larger the animal, the more food it requires. Raising feed for any animal you have takes away from the land you are able to use to raise food for your own family. Actually, more land than the food you will receive from the animals. This means that raising enough animals to provide us with our needs requires more land than is available in suburbia. So for those of us who can't afford to move to a 10-acre homestead outside of town, we need something else. At least a part of that something else will probably be hunting. But hunting in a post-apocalyptic world will be much different than the hunting we know today. To start with, unless you're talking stray dogs and cats, which probably won't last long, there probably won't be all that many animals for you to hunt within walking distance of your home. Nor will you probably be able to drive to your favorite hunting spot, assuming you have one. Whatever gas will exist will be a precious commodity. This means that hunting will not be a day excursion, but rather a lengthy one. Hunters will have to leave their homes for a week or two just to make it to the hunting area, be able to hunt, prepare their catch, and trek it back home. Such an excursion would have to be carefully planned, with people left behind to protect the home and family while the hunters are away. I don't know how it is where you live, but where I live, hunting consists of putting out bait corn and waiting in a raised blind for animals to come eat it. Once they came, all you had to do was aim and pull the trigger. That's not the sort of hunting I grew up with. 
when I was hunting as a young man, we had to go out and find the game and stake out a place alongside a game trail, not bait the game into where we were. Baiting the game was illegal. Hunting the way I grew up requires knowing about the habitats of wild game, specifically understanding their daily habits. Most animals, like humans, are creatures of habit, so the trick is to learn their habits. Where do they feed? Where do they water? Where do they bed down for the night? What is their schedule, for lack of better word? For example, most game animals water early in the morning and late in the evening. Knowing this allows us to stake out water holes and wait for the animals to come to us if we can find the water holes that the animals use. In turn, finding that water hole means knowing what signs to look for so that you can track the game you want. What do their tracks look like? What does their scat look like? Knowing where to look for the animals means being able to recognize those things and use them to figure out what animals are in the area and where the animals go. Today, hunters mostly look for a good trophy and laws in some states put limitations on what game can be harvested. This is all part of the conservation need needed to help maintain the animal population. But when people are desperate for food, they won't be caring about conservation. You and I and every other hunter out there will kill whatever we see just to make sure that we can feed our families. This means that over time the game will become scarce, with some species even possibly becoming extinct. While that will upset the environmentalists, there will be many more human lives lost because they can't hunt and feed themselves. With people desperate for food, chances are pretty high that people will be willing to kill just about anything. This may actually include killing each other and resorting to cannibalism in some cases. More than that, those who can find livestock will probably be killing the livestock regardless of who it belongs to. I can't condone killing other people's livestock for food as that is stealing from them. It could even lead to those people's families starving if enough people do it. Oh, I know that they will justify themselves saying that the farmer or rancher has lots of animals. But when lots of people are killing those animals, they won't last long. Alright, and here in the article there is a infographic from Cabela's just on uh, how to field dress a deer. And so if you're interested in that, uh, it's an interesting graphic there. Even though I can't condone it, I can't understand it. One's great responsibility is to take care of their family. So it does not surprise me to see that people will go to go to this length. Who knows, I may even find myself doing it. I hope not, as I have a neighbor who has a few dozen head of cattle, and I'm hoping I'll be able to work something out with them. This could actually lead to some small range wars, as ranchers and farmers try to protect their livestock from poachers and rustlers. From the ranchers' and farmers' viewpoint, they would only be protecting their property, but others will see it as wrong. In addition to the dangers of irate ranchers and farmers, there will be a risk of being shot by other hunters. Part of this will be because there will be many inexperienced hunters who are out there just because of need. Some of them won't ever have fired a gun or seen a deer in real life. These are the kind of hunters who shoot at a stirring in the bush, convincing themselves that they saw a deer moving through the trees. They may also be those who are out there hunting the hunters, not as cannibals, but to steal whatever game they manage to kill. Desperation gives people crazy ideas, so the idea of stealing some hunter's deer or hog might sound pretty good to someone who is hungry. Constant vigilance will be necessary. The second thing that could be different about hunting in a post-apocalyptic world is the weapon that we choose to hunt with. A good hunting rifle produces over 175 decibels of sound, depending on weather, terrain, and foliage that can be heard as much as 5 miles away advertising your position and that you probably have caught some game. 
with that great of an acoustical signature, would you really want to be hunting with a rifle? I think not. We'll probably see a great increase in bow hunting during that time as people try to keep their hunting stealthy and avoid attracting undue attention. Based upon all this, I think a typical hunting trip would take a week or two, two weeks, assuming that we're talking about a time when gasoline is gone and the, and the hunters would end up having to travel by foot. Travel time would necessitate such a long trip regardless of the time it took to do the hunting itself. Such hunting trips could only be undertaken by survival teams because it would be necessary to leave some people behind to guard the homestead while others went out on the hunt. The hunting party itself would probably only consist of two to three people, enough to get the job done and defend itself without severely lowering the defenses of the base camp. Considering that the average walking speed over smooth level terrain is 3.5 miles per hour, it would probably take two to three days to get to an area where the team could hunt. Of course, that would depend on where they lived and how close they were to any wilderness area with game. In some parts of the country, the travel time would be considerably shorter, while in others, the distance would probably make hunting impractical. To make the most of the trip, any such hunting party should bring along a means of carrying the meat they kill back to the home base without having to carry it on their backs. A cart of the kind that some hunters use for bringing their kills out of the hills would work well, as it would probably be lightweight and built for use in rough terrain. Upon arrival at the hunting area, a temporary camp would need to be established and the hunting could begin. For maximum efficiency, the hunters would probably split up but remain close enough to call out to each other or call on portable radios in case of a problem. One of the key things to make this sort of hunting as effective as possible would be the need to butcher and preserve the meat before returning home. Fresh meat doesn't keep well without refrigeration or freezing, so the meat would have to be dried, making it into jerky or smoked. Either is possible in the wild, although drying is easier than smoking. Jerking the meat also provides the advantage of being able to reduce its weight considerably. Typically, jerky loses half its weight during the drying process, so bringing back 200 pounds of meat from such a hunt is like bringing back 400 pounds of fresh meat. That maximizes the effectiveness of the hunt providing the most meat possible for the small team of hunters to haul back. Hides should also be collected as they can be turned into leather, which has many uses. While some initial preparation of the hides would be necessary before transport, the majority of the work in tanning them could wait until returning to the homestead. The return trip would take longer and be more dangerous. The added weight of a couple hundred pounds of meat would slow travel down, tiring the hunters more quickly. In addition, they would have to be on constant lookout for others who might want to steal what they had. While there would probably be some risk of attack for anyone on the roads, a small team with a couple of hundred pounds of meat would be a very attractive target. At two ounces of meat per person per day, normal portion size of fresh meat is considered five ounces. 400 pounds of jerky would last 16 people or four families of four 100 days. That would indicate a need to go hunting every three months. If the hunting team brought back 400 pounds of jerky each trip, obviously the more they could bring back, the longer it would last. Of course, hunting can only be accomplished effectively during about eight or nine months of the year with the best time of hunting being in the fall. During the winter months, game can, can move about very little, making them considerably harder to find. The availability of any such team to bring back larger amounts of meat will depend more on the av availability of the game than anything else. One white-tailed deer 
provide somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds of meat. The average javelin or wild pig provides 33 to 35 pounds of field dressed. By comparison, the average 1,200-pound steer will net roughly 490 pounds of boneless trimmed beef. So clearly, the steer is the better catch if you can get one. All right, so um, interesting article there, right? You know, I have always heard and I've always read that when if there was a real collapse situation, that everybody would be going out into the woods and there wouldn't be, I mean, they would kill off anything very, very quickly. Um, that's one of the things that uh, that I remember reading in uh, One Second After, right? Is that, you know, people would go out into the woods and then they had to go deeper and deeper to uh, to find animals that they could, uh, that they could kill. And uh, I think that would happen as well. I mean, here, I mean, I live in the suburbs of Houston and there are times where we still see deer um, in, in open fields or whatever and uh, and not even really open fields i mean they're fenced in and stuff like that there's people they're, they're they belong to people is what i'm trying to say or businesses but we still see them but they would be gone so quickly uh you know they they would be gone so fast and then going out into the woods i just think everybody would do that the other thing is you know that you would have to consider when you go out to uh the country let's just say you're going out to the woods and you're going deeper uh, other people might feel it kind of like he was talking here about ranchers and farmers that other people would start to feel like you're you know trespassing on their land and so you might have to not only you're looking for a hunter or for something to hunt but you're looking for people that are trying to uh, you know to get rid of you and they don't want you on their land because anything that's on their land they want to hunt for themselves and so you know that's a that's another thing that you're having to deal with. Um, you know, the steer thing with all the meat that you can get from the steer, uh, you, one of the things that you always read about rabbits is if you have uh, two does and a buck and you breed them optimally, and that's the key word, optimally, you can have as much or you can breed uh, enough rabbits to have as much meat as you would out of a, you know, out of a, a steer or, or, you know, as if you were raising beef. Now, if you had multiple rabbits, I mean, you could do even even more, right? And so that's one thing to consider. The thing to consider about that is you would need to have a way to feed them and growing the you know growing meat to be able to feed them. One of the things about the suburbs and living, you know, we've talked about that here recently. Is uh, there's a lot of other things to consider other than just uh, having food, uh, you know, the the meat to eat. Uh, you might you, you're going to be dealing with all kinds of other things, uh, sanitation and water and all that in those regards, I guess. So anyway, but very interesting article here and something to think about uh, when, you know, if this was ever a situation, something to always keep in the back of your mind. And again, that was over at survivalpedia.com. There's links and like I said, that infographic might be interesting for you if you are wanting, uh, you know, just a visual on field dressing a deer. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our next article. It comes to us from survivalblog.com and uh, the title of this article is Health and Hygiene Tips for the Homestead, Part 1. And there's some, uh, you know, interesting things here. And uh, I think hygiene is always an important topic that we need to consider, not only now, um, you know, (laughs) nowadays because of everyone being sick. And I don't know if you can tell in my voice, uh, I'm just very uh, dealing with sinuses and drainage and uh, actually the last couple of days, but it's starting to, I'm starting to feel it in my throat. Uh, a lot more, just really uh, scratchy and itchy. 
but uh, everybody seems to be dealing with that here in Houston. Uh, just it's, if it's not the flu, it's bronchitis, it's sinuses, it's it's crazy. Just with the the weather, the way that it's been changing, and so uh, you know, I could keep that into consideration. Uh, I don't necessarily deal with kids anymore on a, on a daily basis, but I deal with a lot of uh, people, you know, that deal with kids, and so. When we uh, when we get together, I'm not shaking hands. I'm doing fist bumps and things like that. Uh, but you know, just being very cautious of everybody around me and trying not to get sick. Uh, you know, of course, dealing like I said, dealing with the sinuses and and uh, the you know all that uh, that comes with that. But uh, trying to stay healthy as much as possible. So uh, let's go ahead and read this one. Like I said, survivalblog.com health and hygiene tips for the homestead. It's always an important article that we need to uh, really look at. Health and hygiene as a subject is not nearly as glamorous as the shoot and scoot topics often discussed. However, these practices have saved untold millions of lives in very uneventful ways year after year. Prevention beats cure every time. Most preppers' medical kits now include such items as quick clot and sealox bandages, sutures or staple kits, Israeli gauzes, and tourniquets. We try to prepare for gunshot wounds or severe lacerations or cuts, but in so doing, let us not overlook the more mundane killers of mankind while specializing on medical conditions that would prove very difficult to deal with in a grid-down situation without medical professionals. History shows us that the three biggest killers of mankind in the third world are dehydration and electrolyte imbalance from diarrhea and vomiting, respiratory collapse or pneumonia brought on by respiratory infection or flu, and localized infections leading to sepsis, systemic shock, and collapse. People in disasters are forced to ingest food and drink that is of questionable quality and purity. Add to that a change in diet and high stress loads, and you find people who may experience severe nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and dehydration. The few victims in Africa who actually survived the Ebola virus had the common sense to chug down electrolyte drinks between the bouts of vomiting and diarrhea until their bodies could finally develop an immunity to the virus. Remember that even if the patient can't keep their stomach contents down, you can still use an electrolyte fluid mixture through an enema to rehydrate them. Realizing that powders generally store longer than liquids, it makes sense to stock up on Gatorade powder mix, electrolyte powders, and tablets. Medialite electrolyte tabs are available on Amazon and are also great for working in the heat of summer. These have the electrolyte salts in them without all the food coloring, sugars, and flavors that are found in sports drinks. The same company also makes diatomine tabs or generic Pepto-Bismol and Medimexlines tabs or anti-nausea in boxes of 100 or more. Sam's Club and Walmart sell the generic Imodium. All of these should be in your medical kit. You need to stock up on it now as the FDA is pushing manufacturers to blister pack or severely limiting the amount of generic Imodium available due to reported cases of overdosing. Wintertime is associated with colds and flu. Prior to modern medicines, many common colds went into the lungs and set up infections, resulting in bronchitis, pneumonia, and death. In addition to antibiotics, stock up on expectorant, to remove mucus from lungs and sinuses, decongestant to dry up runny noses, cough medicine for dry unproductive coughs, NSAIDs, Tylenol, aspirins for pain relief, pain fever reducer and reliever. 
I think uh, for cough medicine, if you have uh, just just my two cents here, um, syrup in you know liquid cough medicine is not going to last as long as things that are in you know tablet and capsule form. So that's just one thing. You know when it comes to medical medical preparedness and first aid and expiration dates and those kinds of things, uh, most medicine you know as they expire just really lose their potency, but uh, I think, you know, syrups and liquids are something that uh, you really need to consider, um, you know, not really going too far past that, their, that expiration date. All right, continuing on. Working longer in the gardens and fields will cause more allergies, bug bites, skin abrasions, cuts, and infections. In addition to oral antibiotics for serious infections, stock up on triple antibiotic ointment, hydrocodone, 1% cream, calamine lotion, ich- Ichthomol, uh, drawing salve, peroxide, alcohol, betadine, Benadryl tabs, and cream, and bandages. Check at Dollar Tree or other dollar stores for best savings. Unattended local infections can progress to gangrene, sepsis, and death. A little triple antibiotic on a cut may literally save life and limb. Preppers know the importance of storing up months' supplies of their life-saving prescription medicines, vitamins, and herbal remedies, but have they thought of durable medical equipment and supplies? Most preppers have the first aid and military IFAC kits, but what about the equipment and supplies needed for the long-term convalescent periods that follow illness and injury? These durable items can be stored in attics and garages as they are not usually temperature-sensitive. While it is prudent to have medicines and herbals in stock, likewise it is prudent to save and put away any splints, braces, crutches, wheelchairs, walkers, even bedside commodes that may come your way in your journeys. And so, uh, you know, that's one thing that I remember uh, Nurse Amy from Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy talking about is uh, you, you might have a box or two of gauze or pads or whatever, but in a, uh, you know, in a real situation where someone is hurt, you're going to eat through those very, very quickly. And so, uh, you know, if you are stocking up first aid supplies and, and you have, you know, a kit, you know, and or a couple of boxes of this or a couple of boxes of that, that's something that you need to consider uh, that, you know, you, if you can you store up a little bit more on some of those things. Uh, and, or in, if, if you can, you know, like never get rid of sheets, right? Bed sheets, uh, you can always, you know, uh, sterilize them in, you know, hot water or whatever and use those as bandages if you needed to, uh, if you needed to, to break those down. But anyway, that's uh, just a two cents there. A Velcro back brace available at the home improvement stores is a little saver for when you pull out your back. These cost about $20 and are worth every penny. Sure, I look like a Sam's employee wearing one, but they work wonders in helping my sore back to heal fast. 20 years ago, I badly sprained my wrist. The physician fitted me with a wrist hand splint. I can't tell how many times over the years that same splint has saved me another trip back to the doctor. A few years back, I ran across the remnants of an old civil defense hospital. All the medical equipment was gone, save some leg splints and about 17 olive drab stretchers. For the $35 it cost me, I have been able to distribute these items to prepper families to care for and move the wounded in some future disaster. They also can double as cots for extended family to sleep on. Remember to stock up on extra bedding and hygiene items as well. If you blew your OPSEC at work or at family gatherings, be prepared to have more family, friends, and co-workers on your porch than you ever thought possible when it happens. 
pillows, wool blankets, mattresses, good quality sheets, towels, and washcloths will be in short supply as urban refugees, some possibly injured, move out to the countryside and towards your home. Having covered some basics left, let's cover a few of the exotic items preppers should consider for their medical arsenal. We are familiar with the fish antibiotics like fish mocks and other available antibiotics for infections. But what about other diseases? With modern hygiene and pesticides, America has eliminated the malaria problem that so badly plagues the third world. In a grid-down situation where public hygiene is gone and pesticides disappear, there would occur a roaring resurgence of third world diseases here in the U.S., Survivors will create ponds and pools everywhere to collect rainwater for drinking and bathing, and this will cause mosquito populations to soar. Of the known diseases, malaria has the distinction of being the largest killer of mankind in history. Billions have died from it. Some scientists claim that almost half of humanity has died from it. In 2016, there were 216 million cases worldwide. It currently threatens half of the Earth's population, even with modern technology. One solution would be to stock up on tonic water or lemon bitters, which has quinine as a main ingredient. Gin and tonic originated in India, where the tonic water with quinine was added to spirits to prevent that dreaded disease. A liter of tonic water today is limited by the FDA to about 83 milligrams of quinine in it. The daily therapeutic dose of quinine is the range of 500 to 1,000 milligrams every 8 hours, or 2,100 milligrams daily for a 150-pound man, according to Wikipedia. That is a lot of tonic to drink. While many of you might think that malaria is only found in the tropical jungles, that is not true. Malaria was recently discovered in Fairbanks, Alaska, where it killed the chickadees there. So why it probably won't be common in the northern climates, still, America has many warm, moist climates that would be perfect breeding grounds for the plague. Quasilec's 250mg quinine capsules on eBay and online are made for eliminating parasites. Malaria is a parasitic disease from fish aquariums. These capsules are not intended for human consumption. But if I had malaria in a grid-down situation, believe me, I would take whatever I could to avoid the horrible night sweats, shakes, and fever from that dreaded disease. Just watch some Jungle War movies and it will make a believer of you too. Although other newer and superior anti-malarial drugs are available, this one is available easily without prescription. WHO recommends taking quinine with clitomycin for pregnant females and quinine with doxycycline for non-gravid folks. It's available for you for your fish with 50 caps for $25 on eBay. Again, thinking out of the box, look for inexpensive medical supplies in any good farm and ranch store. There you will find plenty of vet meds, dressings, and supplies available at much lower prices. Elastic wraps, bandages, penicillin, kaolin pectin, antiseptics, liniments, DMSO, and the like. Some meds may require a vet script due to recent government regulations. Another exotic topic but rapidly becoming mainstream is prepping for nuclear war. Unthinkable a decade ago, today we are on a razor-thin margin of the unthinkable happening. Many Christians, including me, have had dreams of nuclear war. I can even name some of the cities shown in my dreams. Since our beloved federal government no longer cares for its citizens, what are we to do here in America? 
In this article, let me center on meds and supplies to have on hand as radiation shielding, sheltering, and air filtering would be another full article. Some of the items needed are duct tape and plastic to seal off windows and doors for preventing radioactive fallout contamination from getting into your home, potassium iodide tablets or iodine solution to apply to stomach and forearms for slow absorption of good iodine into your system. This blocks radioactive iodine from concentrating and burning out your thyroid. This is most important for growing children. And I just want to let you know that potassium iodide is not like a cure for radiation. It just takes care of your thyroid. Calcium-based antacids, tabs, calcium citrate, like citricol, or powdered canned milk to saturate your body with calcium to block out minimum radioactive strontium 90 uptake in the bones as well as radioactive iodine found in milk from exposed animals. Sauerkraut, cabbage, coleslaw, broccoli, cauliflower should be put up to eat after an attack to minimize radiation damage. I freeze dry coleslaw for that purpose. Please do a Google search on Georgetown University lethal radiation. Rats and mice subjected to lethal doses of radiation were fed the above foods and survived while the control group fed their regular diet died as expected. They don't know what compound found in the food group works to help the body heal the radiation damage, but it works. Of course, they can't go and irradiate humans in lethal dosage to do a similar study, so this is as good as it gets for now. Perhaps you laughed at my suggestion to put up a medical bedside commode. Well, how would you like to teeter over a plastic 5-gallon bucket to do your business while sheltering in place? Or would you rather put a liner in that bucket and set it under a foldable bedside commode with handrails on it? For seniors, it's a no-brainer. For a grid-down situation or home without true septic system, these toilets are are great for an emergency. Finally, if you have to go outside in nuclear fallout conditions, it would be good to wear a Tyvek suit or rain suit or gas mask, rubber gloves, and disposable or washable boots. These could also double for use in dealing with the dead and properly disposing of their remains. Tomorrow, we'll continue to look at health and hygiene tips. We will begin with hygiene and move to the solar shower. All right, so that's a good start here for this uh, article, Health and Hygiene Tips for the Homestead. Uh, I'm sure the other articles, part uh, two, and yeah, they're just a part two. Uh, very interesting as well. And so, you know, one of those things that we just need to remember, not only when the grid goes down, but now we need to make sure we have good, good hygiene. And if we can put away, I mean, you think about how cheap things are. Like, you know, you can go to Walmart and you can buy, you know, 12 bars of soap, you know, in one of those little packages uh, for very cheap. And you just think about how, you know, people talk about making your own soap and, and it's good to have that knowledge. And if you can do that and you're in a place where you can make your own, that would be great. But if you were in a situation where you where you couldn't make your own soap or you didn't have time to make your own soap, how valuable would just one bar of soap be, right? And so if you could stock up on some of those things, I mean, that would be great. Uh, you know, not to mention, I mean, they didn't even tackle here in this article. I'm sure maybe the next one will tackle like, uh, you know, brushing your teeth and, and those kinds of things, having enough toothbrushes and, and, and toothpaste. I mean, so that's a good question for you right now. Like how many, how many toothbrushes and how many, uh, you know, uh, tubes of toothpaste do you have in your home right now? Like if you know the collapse happened right now, would you be stuck? Would you be stuck with the tooth 
brush that you have now, would you be stuck with that one forever, right? Or, or you know, just brushing with water because you have one tube of toothpaste and that's it. And so, you know, those kinds of things you start to think of, you know, and we, we talk about stockpiling food. It might be a very good idea to stockpile some of these things as well uh, for you and for your family. Uh, so anyway, that's over at survivalblog.com. Again, health and hygiene tips for the homestead. All right, because it is the Thursday podcast, I do read a conflicted scenario. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this one. It's called Conflicted Tough Family Decisions. What would you do? So here's the scenario. You have been approved by a post-apocalyptic community, which is very well known and respected, and they invited you to join them. Food, water, and comfort await you and your family. However, there is only room for you and your family only. Your buddies and their families depend on you and your skills, but the life you all live now is full of every kind of struggle. Would you join the community for the sake of your family and leave your buddies, or would you stay with your friends and continue to make your family suffer? Why? Interesting scenario here. Let's go ahead and read it one more time. You have been approached by a post-apocalyptic I think I said approved first time around. Uh, it's approached. You have been approached by a post-apocalyptic community, which is very well known and respected, and they, hid, they have invited you to join them. Food, water, and comfort await you and your family. However, there is only room for you and your family only. Your buddies and their families depend on you and your skills, but the life you all live now is full of every kind of struggle. Would you join the community for the sake of your family and leave your buddies or would you stay with your friends and continue to make your family suffer? Why? So, like I said, interesting scenario there. Uh, as always, you can kind of war game that on your own. And, uh, you know, how would you go about doing it? Don't look at the preps that you have now. I mean, that's always the easy way out. Well, you know, the best way to do this is like, okay, with what I know about preparedness, what I know about this scenario, what would I do in this situation? Right. And so in this one, you're taking into account your family, uh, your wife your, or your spouse and your kids and all that kind of stuff. So with what I know about my family and survival, uh, you know, what would I do in this situation? So you can kind of war game that if you have your spouse uh, next to you and you're listening to it, you can war game it with her or him. Uh, and maybe you talk it over with a friend. Uh, but if you would like to come and drop your comments over at Ed That Matters, I'm going to link to the article and you can come drop it in the comment section and share it with everyone else. And uh, so we, we would be interested in reading your comments about how you would handle this scenario. All right. So again, that's going to be over at edthatmatters.com and I will link to it in the show notes as well. All right, guys, that's it for episode 261. Again, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Uh, you know, keep me in your prayers for the sinus stuff and the drainage and the sore throat. Uh, just that sucks. And so uh, that's just part of living in Houston, I guess. You know, it just seems like uh, it, it's been constant here for a while. But uh, like I said, keep me in your prayers. With that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.